Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. I'm your host, Ben Young, and this week we have a special guest, Dr. Grayson Armstrong, who did his residency and chief residency at the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary and is now a tele-ophthalmology fellow there, where he also staffs clinics as an attending. If you didn't already know, the chief residency at Mass Ioneer is done by someone who already did residency there, and as chief, Grayson was in charge of their very busy trauma service, which served most of northern New England and staffed most of the ruptured globe cases that came in. So, I invited Grayson to come on to give us advice in a two-part series on how to manage ruptured globes. Thanks for coming on, Grayson. Thanks for having me. I guess just to start with how to manage ruptured globes or open globes, can you tell us how you define what a ruptured or open globe is? Yeah, so a ruptured globe is actually a subtype, so it's a good question to start off with. Ooh, yeah. Basically, an open globe is any full thickness wound of the eyeball, so that's the sclera or the cornea, and beyond that, there are some subcategorizations. Before we get into that, though, maybe we can talk about how common they are, how rare they are. And so if people are looking at these things or looking for these in the emergency room, they would have their ears up at the right time. So in the United States, it's estimated that they occur in about 3.8 per 100,000 persons. So that ends up being about 12,000 open globes annually Mm. in the United States. Um, They happen more often in young males, which I guess can be somewhat assumed, but it happens at a rate of about 6 to 1 which is pretty fascinating, elderly females, and then people of African-American descent. It's really common in people that had prior ocular surgery, such as cataract extraction, which makes these people vulnerable to blunt ocular trauma. And uh, it's notable that in the past, when people did extra cap cataract surgeries with those big wounds, those are really prone to coming undone. And I've also seen things like trabeculectomies and clear corneal incisions come undone, though, even the modern clear corneal incisions. And then uh, be on high alert if you see someone come in after a sports injury, especially something like paintball or BB gun injury, if they had a work-related injury, or if an elderly falls and hits their eye. Okay. So I already bungled the terminology for open versus ruptured globe. Can you give us a, a way to classify different types of open globes? Sure. So we already talked about how it's a full thickness injury of the wall of the eye. But when we get down to classifying this, we can lump it into two major categories. One is a rupture and one is a laceration. A rupture is basically a blunt injury of the eye where you can imagine like a baseball hitting the eye. And basically it tries to squish the eye and forces the intraocular contents out via this inside out mechanism, kind of like if you're squishing a grape. And then a laceration is the opposite where you have something sharp hit the eye and then this sharp thing penetrates the eye and it has an outside in mechanism. And then those two major categories can kind of be subcategorized and laceration can then be divided into three pieces, either a penetrating injury, a perforating injury, or an intraocular form body. So a penetrating injury first is where an object enters the eye, but it doesn't exit the other side of the eye. So you can imagine this could be like a nail that just like pokes the eye and comes back out, left one hole. A perforating injury is if that same thing went through and through the eye. So the nail goes through one side of the eye, comes out the back of the eye, and then you have two holes. So that's perforating. And then intraocular form body is if something went in but then it got stuck so you can imagine like a bb hitting the eye goes through but then it gets kind of stuck in the vitreous or stuck in the anterior chamber obviously that's categorized as an intraocular form body is do you have any other ways to help classify open globes for example actually i'll i just want to tell you grayson the First time I actually had seen the zone classification was I was a resident doing consults and I did residency in Connecticut 
And it was a patient of yours actually that had a globe repair and you had this beautiful note that, uh, that the patient came with and it said they had a zone three open globe. What is zone three? What does that all that mean? That's a small world. I know. <laughs> you saw my patient. Thanks for taking care <laughs> yeah. of them. Yeah, it was um, an easy follow-up. <laughs> so yeah, zones of injury are actually quite interesting. Um, they're important just for communication purposes clinically, but also for prognostication. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But there's three zones of injury, a zone one, a zone two, and a zone three. Zone one is any corneal injury, basically anything of the cornea up until the limbus. Okay. Zone two is from the limbus to five millimeters past the limbus. So this is ideally the area you would have done like a, you know, uh, anti-VEGF injection in. There's really not much in terms of retina behind it. There's no muscles in front of it. So it's a relatively clean area. But then behind that is zone three. It's everything five millimeters beyond the limbus and more posteriorly. And that's kind of where the extraocular muscles start. It's where the retina may start. And those tend to be kind of worse outcomes. So, you know, you talked about prognosis. Is, do you have any technique to help a patient or help yourself prognosticate where their open globe is going to end up? Yeah. So great question. There is a method of prognostication for open globe injuries. If you have this patient sitting in front of you, it's probably going to be the worst day of their life. And you're going to want to give them some sense of what's going to happen, even if it's relatively dire so that you don't get their hopes up. Um, you want this to be a realistic conversation. So how do you get a sense of what their vision is going to be down the road? Well, we're lucky. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. In 2002, somebody came up with something called the ocular trauma score. And what this does is it takes a few metrics, including their initial vision when they present, whether this was a perforating injury or a rupture, endophthalmitis, if that was present, if they already have a retinal detachment, or if they have a relative afferent pupillary defect. And then you put all these things into this algorithm. It spits out a score, and then that substratifies the score into either one, two, three, four, or five, with one being the worst and five being the best prognosis. This thing has a 77% chance of predicting their final vision. And so this is something where if they're sitting in front of you, literally just had an open globe happen, you'll have a good sense of where their vision's going to end up, more or less. Um, there's also a separate score for pediatrics. It's called the Pediatric Ocular Trauma Score, and it's more useful in children. And that's mainly because it's really hard to get some of these things on a kid. How do you know if they have an RAPD, if the kid's like wiggling around and screaming? You can't really always get a good look at it, but it is uh, separate but related to the prior. And then there's two other things that are interesting. There's something called the RDOGI score, or Retinal Detachment Open Globe Injury Score. And this gives you the risk of retinal detachment after their first trauma. So you can use the zone of injury, their vision, and if they have any vitreous hemorrhage to predict what the rate of retinal detachment is. This is good so that you can send them to retina right away or not, or just watch them. And that's actually important down the road to get their best vision, you know. And then we recently had a study come out that shows that if someone has a ruptured globe plus an orbital fracture, their outcome is much worse. And so just know that if you have a patient in front of you with an orbital fracture plus an open globe, you should probably counsel them that they're not going to do too well on average. I see. I see. And just as a tip to any consult residents out there, in my personal dot phrase, and I don't know, uh, Grayson, if you do something similar, I copied the whole table that tells you how to calculate the ocular trauma score into my dot phrase. So every time I saw a globe patient, I could just I would put my dot phrase in that had all my checklist things and could quickly calculate their trauma score without having to look it up on my phone or whatnot. And because, you know, I think as Grayson was saying, it's, it's super useful to know. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Okay. So 
You know, I think as a resident for me, sometimes what was challenging, especially early on taking call, is knowing when someone had an open globe. I mean, sometimes it's obvious, but sometimes it's really not so obvious. Can you tell us what you look for or what indicators there are for open globes? Yep. So when it's obvious, it's obvious. If you see the cornea lacerated and the iris is pooching out, then I think there's no question. Same thing if you see a big scleral laceration or like a nail in the eye, like I said, <laughs> those things, there's no question. <laughs> And this is probably a very morbid talk, so apologies to all the residents who are listening to this thinking, oh my God. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> there, there are some things that if you're not 100% sure you should look for, and these are all based on data uh, from prior papers, but the strongest predictor of having an open globe is if you check their IOP and it's less than six millimeters of mercury in the right mm -hmm. clinical context. So that's probably the biggest thing. It should be noted here that if you think there's an open globe, maybe don't check their pressure. But mm -hmm. if you just happen to have the ED resident consult you and say, hey, you know, their pressure is like two, just have them not <laughs> test the eye anymore. Um, the, vision, if it's, uh, the vision worse than hand motion is definitely a high predictor. Anterior chamber asymmetry, and this is an interesting one. You may think that with a corneal laceration, having a shallow chamber is obvious open globe, and that's true. But one of the things that can happen with a posterior rupture is that the anterior chamber is much deeper on that side. And they might not have a hyphema, they may not have a lot of cell, you may not have a great view posteriorly, but the anterior chamber gets really deep. And that's one of the clinical signs people don't always know to look for. If you can't visualize the retina or the fundus, either because of heme retinal detachment or just because it seems like a big dark hole, those things tend to be a good predictor. And if they have a relative afferent pupillary defect, that also tends to be a good predictor that there's something going on. Gotcha. So, in, you know, we're going to go more into what you're looking for in the examination next. But, you know, anyone who's taking consults know that there are cases where it's borderline whether or not someone has an open globe or not. So, you know, some examples are, you know, they have a lot of subconscious hemorrhage, but it's not quite 360, maybe it's 300 degrees of subconscious. Or it's a question whether or not a corneal foreign body is full thickness or not, whether it's gone all the way in. Or if the patient is difficult, if they're nonverbal, it's for whatever reason, it's really difficult to look at the eye itself. So in those cases, Grayson, what would you do when you had these borderline cases? That's a great, really good question. I mean, there's a lot of cases that come through and you're just like, really not 100% sure it's a globe or not. And then the question is, what do you do about it, right? So you can either sit there and watch it, or you can take them to the OR and explore. You can take them to the OR and safely take out their corneal foreign body and hope it's not full thickness. Or you can go there in there with your 300 degrees of subconscious instead of 360 and explore in all the quadrants and take a look underneath the conge. But my thought, and I think this is probably a good rule of thumb, is that if you're thinking about it, you should probably take them to the OR. If you're sitting there debating, it's safer to do it than not. And let's say hypothetically, they don't have a globe. You know, sure, they go under general anesthesia and there's risks with that. But, what, you know, if you're going to go in there and they don't have a scleral laceration and you wake them up 20 minutes later and they're happy as a clam because their vision's going to be okay, or if you take the corneal form body out and it's not full thickness and they only had to endure like a five-minute procedure under anesthesia, that's not the worst thing in the world, you know? So I would have a very low threshold. And I would counsel patients to go to the OR if there was a serious concern. And worst case scenario, you know, they have a globe and you fix it right then and there. And you haven't waited too right. long. Right. So, you know, uh, speaking of exploring, what are the most common sites of rupture in rupture globes? Yep. So for, for lacerations, it can be anywhere, wherever the sharp thing hits the eye. But for ruptures specifically, there's two things. And these actually come up on the boards too. So behind the muscle bellies, 
right after it inserts. So let's say you have the medial rectus, like literally right behind where the insertion is anteriorly. It's the thinnest part of the eye. So right behind the muscle bellies is a really common site for rupture. And the corneal limbus actually ends up being quite, for whatever reason, where the cornea meets the sclera, it's not that secure. And that's a really common site of rupture too. And so now that we've talked about kind of the fact that the most common site for rupture is sometimes behind the muscle bellies. It's also important to know where those muscle bellies lie. When you get into the OR, you're going to be looking at an eye, most likely, that has a ton of subconjunctival hemorrhage, a lot of clot around, a lot of mess. Everything's kind of disorganized. And so you're going to want to have some landmarks in your mind before you go in and start exploring for this. And so one of the things that you learned probably as a first-year resident but may have fallen out of your memory quickly is this thing called the spiral of Tello. And this is kind of this embryologic insertion of the muscle bellies on the eye. And so it's literally a spiral where the muscles insert, starting with the medial rectus, 5.5 millimeters behind the limbus. Then the inferior is 6.5 millimeters behind the limbus. The lateral is 6.9 millimeters behind the limbus. And the superior is 7.7 millimeters behind the limbus. And when a globe is flat and disorganized, you at least know, if you have your calipers there, where the muscle should be so you can explore very gently. Another reason why this is important is you don't want to go dissecting the muscle belly off looking for the scleral rupture on accident, which could happen, right? Because everything mm-hmm. kind of looks the same in there. But you want to be able to kind of hook those muscles and look underneath those. So that spiral of Tello is a really important thing to refresh yourself on before you go into the OR. Another interesting thing is just that the inferior oblique inserts over the macula. And so if you start exploring and you're all the way back to where the inferior oblique inserts, you should know that you're probably like <laughs> hit the end of the line. Very posterior. Wow. Yeah, very posterior. Just a tip to, you know, early residents, if you are doing strabismus surgery, then you can kind of prove to yourself that the area behind the muscle bellies is where the sclera is thinnest. So next time you, you know, take down a muscle, look at the area behind the muscle insertion. And you'll see that it has like just a little bit more bluish color than, you know, the, the you know, other parts of the sclera because it's thin, thinner there, especially if your surgical assistant isn't um, hydrating that area quite as well as they perhaps should be. Then as it dehydrates, you'll see it, it gets thin very quickly and looks very blue because you can see the uvia under it. And don't ask me how I know that. So, <laughs> um, okay, so that's the uh, anatomy. So can you tell us what... Uh, you do, Grayson, when you're doing your pre-op assessment, you know, your exam, your history, what are you asking about? Yeah. Let's say you have a patient sitting in front of you. What are the things you need to think about and things to ask about? Well, just like any good doctor, you want to take a history first. The patient may be in pain, but these are pretty important things to gather. Obviously get the chief complaint, the HPI, but then you want to get a sense of their medical and surgical history and their ocular history. This can guide you to see what their potential visual outcome is going to be. Are there any comorbidities you need to think about if you're taking them under general anesthesia? Have they had eye surgery before? Is there something wrong with their other eye, their good eye, that you need to be aware of? You know, like if they're amblyopic in their good eye now, I mean, you need to know that going in because you're going to need to really, you know, pay attention and maximize their vision outcome. You need to know the timing of the injury, exactly what time it happened as best as they can tell. The cause of the injury is important. Did this happen with, you know, like a a cactus spike Mm -hmm. versus, you know, just like a rupture on a corner table? You know, if it's organic matter or something, that's important to know. Or if there's a risk of something inside the eye. And then obviously get their tetanus status. You don't want them to to get infected with tetanus while they're recovering from the open globe. Yeah. Wow. What about a physical exam? On physical exam, we talked about some of the things to look for. 
But one of the things that I stress is you always want to look at both eyes. Don't just look at the eye that's the most obvious problem. Like I said before, something could be going on in that second eye, their good one. And uh, you're going to want to know that ahead of time for counseling purposes. So look at both. Check their vision in both eyes. Check for a relative apparent pupillary defect. If you are going to check the IOP, be very careful. But you could also just avoid doing that in the problem eye. You don't want to go mucking around and push on the eye and cause expulsion of intraocular contents. And then at the slit lamp, you want to look for anything that looks like an obvious wound, right? Like any scleral or corneal laceration with uvea prolapsing or vitreous prolapsing. But then if you're looking at the cornea and you're not quite sure, you can do a Seidel test, which for the residents out there, you, you may have come across this, but you want to take like a little fluorescein strip with a little preparacane or, or BSS on it and just tap it on the area of interest and watch it under that blue, cobalt blue light. And if the fluid from the inside of the eye is kind of coming out of that wound, it washes away the fluorescein and you see it kind of like a little waterfall and it washes that away and then you know it's truly full thickness. Sometimes it's hard to tell without doing that test. Um, and then sometimes it can save you a trip to the OR because if it's not Seidel positive, sometimes you can even get a little more confident and push on the eye a little bit. And if it's still not leaking, then you can be pretty confident that at least like the decimase is intact and you might just want to watch it for now. Mm -hmm. um, if there's scleral involvement, you might want to look for something like bullous subconcheme. And I know we talked about that before. If they have 360 bullous subconcheme, that's usually a pretty good indicator you should at least explore, if not a good indicator that they have something going on. And another good thing to just note, because it's easy to forget in the heat of the moment, look at their eyelids. Do they have an eyelid laceration or a canalicular laceration? Yeah, so you want to look at the eyelids, make sure that they don't have a lid marginal laceration or a canalicular laceration, because you're going to want to repair that at the same time. And I've seen cases where you just get so caught up in the, the fact that they have a nail in their eye that you forgot to fix the eyelid until right at the end you're like, oh, sorry anesthesia, we're not quite ready, it's going to take another 40 minutes. <laughs> so you just want to be ready for that. And then again, you want to dilate both eyes and look in the back of both because you don't want to miss something in the bad eye. I've seen people with like macular degeneration or fulvial scarring that they weren't aware of because their other eye used to be their good eye. You know, I've seen people with myelinated nerve fiber layers or even an RD from the trauma, and you don't want that to go missed. Hmm. Um, and then what about other imaging? Like, what do you think about if, you know, generally avoiding a tonal pen, what do you th think about things like B-scan? Yeah, so B-scan can be helpful sometimes. If you think that the eye is relatively formed, then, and you have confidence that you're not going to extrude intraocular contents, you might just want to do a gentle B-scan or have like a trained professional do so, or maybe the retina individual do so to look for an intraocular form body. But if you're thinking about intraocular form body, there's an easier way to go actually. So we actually get CT scans on everybody that comes in with a concern for an open globe mm -hmm. because we don't want to miss something, right? Even if there's no history indicating it, they may have a piece of metal or wood inside the eye. You also want to look for fractures because we talked about how fractures are a worse indicator of outcome. Now, sometimes if the CT scan may show subtle findings, one thing we don't think about doing often is a plain film, but plain films would capture anything and it, would, it doesn't have these thin cuts where there's spaces between. We generally also, just so you know, get CT scans with thin cuts, as thin as they can go, so we don't miss anything small. And then if you're thinking about organic matter or wood, those can show up like an air pocket or a gas pocket on CT, but MRI is really good for looking at that. Obviously, if there's a concern for metal, avoid getting an MRI, but all those testing... Okay. Uh, would be helpful in various scenarios, but we would, at least at Mass Eye and Ear, we get a CT scan on everybody. 
Yeah, and just on the, the point of thinnest slice as possible, I know at um, where I trained for residency, you it was always a good idea to specify that in the order because you know they're doing, you know, CT orbits or CT heads for all kinds of reasons that they may not immediately know. And where I trained, there were different levels of quote thinnest slices possible. Like the default was one millimeter, but then they could get to 0.7 millimeters if like we really wanted it. So just uh, that's something that I would put into my order. So. Okay, so let's say now we're either confident they have an open globe or, you know, we're confident, we think they at least need to go to the OR. What are the goals of management here? If I have that patient sitting in front of me, they're already in like the worst day of their life. They're paying a lot of attention to everything you say. So just be mindful of how you talk about what's going on. You want to set realistic expectations with them. You don't want to be overly hopeful and overly confident and the fact that they're going to get 2020 again. We also don't want to be the grim reaper walking in like your eyes got to go. Like everything in between is fine, but you just want to be realistic. And that's where that prognostication comes in and telling them, look, you know, in your scenario, there's a relatively good chance of visual outcome. It's probably going to be a little blurry anyway after this. It's not going to come back right away. Or you can tell them, you know, you don't, you're currently NLP with a bad RAPD. Um, that just signifies that you're probably not going to get any vision back after this, but we've got to try our best since we're going to try to close the eye and let it heal. And then always tell them that there's a good chance of needing a second or maybe even a third surgery after this. And this is the beginning of a long process where they're kind of starting down a road towards recovery. And this is just the first day of that. So don't give them the hope that they're going to see 2020 day one, even if it's a small corneal laceration. Yeah. You know, and then the literature supports this, but we always try to take someone to the operating room within 24 hours of the injury, not of presentation. So let's say their injury happened 19 hours prior to them coming into the the your emergency room, and it's the middle of the night. Well, unfortunately, you've got to take them like right away because anything past 24 hours uh, gives you a really high chance of endophthalmitis and worse vision outcomes, worse ocular outcomes and morbidity. And so you've got to get them in within that 24-hour mark, if at all possible. And then you want to protect the eye prior to surgery. So from the moment they walk through the door, they should be given a fox shield over the eye to protect it from anything, anti-emetics so that they don't accidentally valsalva and expulse any intraocular contents. You want to avoid any IOP measurements if you can, like we talked about. You want them to be bed rest, strict bed rest with NPO status from the moment they walk in. You want these people to do as little as possible so there's 0% chance that it gets worse before the OR happens. And the last thing is that you want to prevent infection. So before they even go to the OR, you can start giving them antibiotics. And I know that there's a lot of different ways of doing this. At Mass Ioneer, what we do, we give IV antibiotics for 48 full hours on an inpatient basis before they go home. And we give them vancomycin and ceftazidime dosed for that full 48 hours. But other institutions do oral antibiotics. Some just do topical. I think at least oral is probably important to consider. And you want to prophylax against the common bugs. We'll talk about those later, but you want to get gram-positive, gram-negative coverage, and that vancomycin-ceftazidime is a good combo. It's also just interesting. I'll mention it here. But ceftazidime is one of those medications you're like, what? I've never really heard about dosing that before. I never thought about giving that to a patient before. That's not something I gave during my intern year on medicine. And the reason we give that one... Uh, I had to look this up, actually, is that it has really good pseudomonas coverage, unlike the other third-generation cephalosporins. And so not only are you getting the gram-negative coverage, but this, the pseudomonas coverage, which is like a not uncommon finding around the eyeball, is really well covered with septaz. So it's one of the only times you might come across the use of that medication. And then after we, after we do the surgery, you obviously use topical antibiotics. Gotcha. 
And, you know, just um, coming back to your point about setting expectations for the patient, you know, if you're a junior resident listening to this and you know how your program is structured is a consult resident sees the patient, but then it's a surgical resident coming to do the case. Like I would always advise my junior residents to not get into setting expectations or even to do the consent for, you know, to talk about all the things that, that Grayson just talked about, needing other surgeries and such. Because, you know, if you're not the one doing the surgery, especially if you haven't seen many globes yet, you may not know how, how to prognosticate it. And you may set false expectations for the patient. And, you know, we've definitely seen cases where that has gone very poorly in terms of interpersonal relationship between the patient and the physician. Like, you know, do all the testing to do, but I would leave the surgical discussion for surgical residents or fellows. So. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. Think about it like this way. If you're setting expectations, you really want to make sure that the patient understands that they may have a bad outcome. But more importantly than that, they need to stay plugged into care to continue getting the treatment they need. And if you scare them away day one, you know, or you over or underestimate what's going to happen, they may never come back, right? If you tell them they're going to be 2020, they might have sutures all in their cornea, but they might not ever come back because they're so confident. Or if you scare them away and you talk so poorly about what's going to happen, they may never want to come back again because they're so scared. So it's good to keep that middle ground so they stay plugged into care. Yeah, definitely. And one reason why they need to stay plugged in the care is with something you talked about, infection or endophthalmitis. So you can tell us a little bit about the data on endophthalmitis after open globes. Yep. So this is an interesting area of research. Obviously, there's a lot of open globes that happen, and people have looked into this extensively. Um, in the literature, you'll see the rates of endophthalmitis after open globe in adults to be somewhere between 0 and 16.5% or so. And then in children, it's higher. 5.7 to 54.2% of children end up with endophthalmitis. And that's really high. You know, there are a lot of risk factors and things you can kind of do to decrease this. So one of the, the major risk factors is delayed wound closure past 24 hours. Once they hit that 24.1 hour mark, <laughs> they, they have a four times higher risk of endophthalmitis according to the literature. So try to get them in within 24 hours. If they already have a hypopion, then they're probably going to develop endophthalmitis. The odds ratio of that was found to be like 175, so really, really high risk. Vitreous inflammation, which is essentially early endophthalmitis in some cases, is odds ratio is 22%. And corneal ulcer, if they come in with that in addition to the open globe, then they probably have an odds ratio of about 20 times. Other things to think about, keratitis, similar to corneal ulcer, increased risk. But IOFB, intraocular foreign body, retinal detachment, and diabetes have been found to be risk factors in addition to wound contamination, especially if it occurs in a rural setting, things like getting plant matter on the eye or fungal matter on the eye. And an interesting thing is if they have lens capsular violation and a traumatic cataract, they do have an increased risk of endophthalmitis as well. So all things to think about. What kind of bugs are, do we see? There's some common bugs that we see, um, skin flora and then the bacillus cirrus. Species is that how you say it? Serious, serious, serious. Sure. Uh, so, Apologies, it's so, not serious over that. <laughs> <laughs> so there's you know the strep and the staph species, which are thought to come from the skin, and then there's this. It's it actually comes up on the boards and in the literature when you're reviewing for the boards. But be serious is the way I think about it. It's like these globes are very serious. So be serious is how I remember that. Um, in terms of which ones are more common than others. Up to 75% of these are caused by gram-positive organisms, so that vancomycin that we talk about was super important. But up to 10% are from the gram-negative, and so you do want to cover that. 
And then fungal is not that uncommon in terms of endophthalmitis. It happens in about 55 to 8.3% of cases of open globe endophthalmitis. Ceftazidine we talked about is a third generation cephalosporin, so we use that. has good gram-negative and pseudomonas coverage, and then Vanco has great gram-positive coverage. It's worth mentioning that our whole protocol is very standardized at Mass Ioneer. We give them that 48 hours of IV antibiotics. We also, during the case at the end, give them a subconjunctival injection of cefazolin and dexamethasone. And postoperatively, we give at least one week of topical moxifloxis and eye drops. And our rate of endophthalmitis was found to be 0.9%, which is one of the lowest in the literature. That came out quite a few years ago, but it is worth knowing that if you take a standardized approach to these cases, you can actually get pretty good outcomes. Yeah, that's awesome. So can, can I ask you just a bit about the dexamethasone? Are there cases where you might be concerned enough about infection, like there's obvious matter on the eye that you may hold on dexamethasone, or do you just always give it? Well, the way to think about it is that you've already kind of blasted the eye as best as possible with antibiotics. We don't tend to give antifungals unless there's a really specific reason to do so. We don't just give everybody antifungals. But because you've hit it so hard with the Venco, with the you know Ceftaz, with the Cefazolin, with the Moxifloxacin, they basically should be well covered. And then at that point, the healing of the eye is going to be limited by the inflammation that happens, which is going to happen in all open globes. And so you want to give that eye the best chance of healing and calming down, right? There's going to be a ton of inflammation, the cornea, the sclera, the uvea, the retina, all these things are going to be attacked by the inflammatory cells. So that dexamethasone, we give it to everybody no matter what, because we do think it's going to be helpful. We also give them post-operative prednisolone drops afterwards, starting literally day one. So Mm -hmm. the healing of the eye, just as much as you want to prevent infection, you do want to promote healing as well. You know, with fungal, we don't tend to treat everybody uh, right away with antifungal or antifungal medications unless there's a reason to. But if you're in a climate where the uh, it's very warm and humid, um, like closer to the equator than not, then you might want to consider doing that in certain cases. If there's known plant matter that caused it, if they already have an early infectious kind of look to the cornea after a strike with plant matter, you might want to give that. And, uh, you know, if there's an intraocular foreign body, especially with like wood or plant matter, you really might want to hit them hard. But it's been shown that in tropical climates, fungal infection occurs more often than in other places. Hmm. Okay. Well, Grayson, thanks so much for that awesome review of the preoperative considerations and management of open globes. Next week, we're going to be back with a discussion of surgical tips about how to do open globes for the residents who are at that stage of their training. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at iSportYears with number four. And if you'd like to support the podcast, a rating review on iTunes or wherever you found our podcast is super helpful. Thanks for everyone's time, and we'll see you next week. Bye.